Hello and welcome to We Are History with me, John O'Farrell. And me, Angela Barnes. Today we are doing our first We Are History on lockdown. We are. We've been in lockdown now, what, for about a month, is it? Uh, 27 years, it feels like. (laughs) It does a bit. How are you coping? I'm all right. The people I feel sorry for are all those people who did dry January. Bad choice, guys. Yeah. <laughs> what were they thinking? The idea that you were never going to go to a pub for the rest of the year did not occur to them. <laughs> That's what I miss most is going to the pub. Yeah, go to the pub, going to see football matches, seeing friends. Yeah. Uh, well, never mind. We can still uh, record our uh, much-loved podcast. We can well. indeed. And what better uh, time to learn than when you've got absolutely sod all else to do? We are uh, recording this uh, sort of sort of seventy miles apart, whatever London and Brighton are. Yeah, uh, I am in South London. Angela is in Brighton. But with the wonder of the worldwide web net web, we <laughs> we are going to today talk about the Spanish Civil War, nineteen thirty six to nineteen thirty nine. Well, it's not a load of laughs, is what I'm going to say. From it's the top. not, is it? I think we wanted to do this one because it's such a thing in popular history isn't it it's such a thing that people know about but don't know about I was never taught this at school no this was something I was just always vaguely aware of sort of growing up I I Mm. was um a big fan of George Orwell's writing as a young man and read all of his works and of course read Homage to Catalonia Mm. uh and I think that was my way into it but I think I read that a bit too young uh and I never really came back to the Spanish Civil War um, yeah. So when I think you suggested it, Angela, I thought, oh, yeah, actually, I, I would need to know more about that. And I'm interested in knowing about that. Mm. And um, for a comedy podcast, you know, what could be better than the uh, mass execution of uh, innocent um, <laughs> socialists? So, um, so, I mean, calling this a comedy podcast is quite strong, John. Yeah, you know. I know. We try to be lighthearted. We try to be lighthearted about the stuff that interests us. Yeah. Sometimes perhaps the tone might have to be more serious. So, uh I'm going to lead on this one. Uh, We're going to record another one after this, which Angela will lead. So uh, don't think I'm an old bloke mansplaining war. That's not what it is. It is. (laughs) So the war. No, the first thing a lot of people will think of when they hear the phrase Spanish Civil War might well be the famous Picasso painting of uh, Guernica. Guernica. That was a painting commissioned by the Republican government and a famous image of a horrendous bombing raid that happened in the war. And we'll get to what that was and what the context was. But we'll start with a bit of background. Spain, 1930s, very different place to Spain now. No English bars? No Benny Hill bar in Magaluf. (laughs) No Benny Dorm. Uh, An agricultural country, really. A very, very poor agricultural country with a few industrial centres in places like um, Catalonia and the Basque Country in Madrid. But really uh, very divided, divided regionally, linguistically and politically. Mm. It had a king, King Alphonsus VIII. About 25 million people in Spain. Now, Spain, of course, has been a major imperial power uh, in previous centuries but as is the way with major imperial powers the ordinary people don't get much of that gold there's that famous photograph isn't there of the king in his car driving through the countryside in the 1920s and his car's broken down and these peasants sort of helping him to and they just look like different species they just look like you know that there's such a it's a real sort of photograph of the difference in the imperial uh you know wow. versus the, the, the peasantry yeah absolutely and they're just sort of helping with this car while and in the background of the photograph there's like a bloke on a horse and cart just looking at them like what are you doing wow what the hell's going yeah. on there his uh, wife actually was uh english born she was um queen victoria's granddaughter born yeah. in balmoral uh, scottish born i should say british born <laughs> in 1931 he called elections uh, there'd been a lot of turmoil in Spain, a military coup in 1923. Spain had been neutral in the First World War, but mm. a lot of turmoil, a lot of divisions between anarchists and Marxists and monarchists and Republicans. He called an election in 31, expecting to win it. Absolute landslide for anti-monarchists, for Republicans. And uh, he packed up his bag and left. So yeah. poor Alfonso. In not exile. So poor, not so poor Alfonso. I think he went to um, Rome and his wife went to Switzerland. So uh, that, <laughs> that like tells you something about the marriage. Isn't it? marriage. <laughs> yeah. um, so then there was a uh, you know progressive government from 1931 onwards. Spain, having lost an empire, still had this big imperial army. It didn't quite know what to do with itself. Mm. They had land 
in uh, territories in northern Africa, uh, Morocco, the okay, Spanish-Moroccan yeah. territories, and they mm. uh, kept the army there. Um, and this was to play a crucial part in in the story we're going to tell. This Republican government attempted sort of radical land reform, but was fiercely resisted by the landowners and the church. And the, I have to say, Angela, the politics mm. of Spain, God, it's complicated. Did you, it's, did you try and get know, your head around? I, I started to read this, and it, and it is an excellent book, and I will get through it. Anthony Beaver's book. Oh, yeah, um, yeah Battle for Spain. The Battle it? for Spain. But the first yeah. maybe 20 pages are just a list of the different factions involved. Yeah. On both oh sides. It's like, and uh, it's, you know, it's a people's front of and Judea and the Judean really people's is. front. And, the, and you know, there's, Whom, to, yeah. to split it into Republicans and nationalists is really oversimplifying a, yeah. a, oh, it's a really complicated complex, yeah. situation, isn't it? Because you've got capitalists but who are on the side of Republic and, you know, yeah. it's not just communists versus fascists. It's not that simple, is it? But that's no, we sort of have worse. to make it that simple a bit. It's worse than my old Labour Party meetings, I'm telling you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. So the Phalangists were like the small, this very small, not very influential fascist party. Then the anarchists, the anarchism was a big thing in Spain. Mm. And they did actually uh, refuse to take office when they won elections. It's like, no, we're anarchists, we can't. Um, there were socialists, Trotskyists. They would later poom, the mm-hmm. uh, P-O-U-M. They'd be crushed later by Stalin-backed communists. Um, so basically, it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, Tony Blair v. John Major, this politics. It no. was pretty extreme. It was uh, There was street fighting and the whole first half of the 30s, increasing political violence until um, 1936, um, the election of a socialist popular government. And that made the military realise they weren't going to get rid of this government without a coup. Now, this, this hadn't been the first coup, but this had been the first really well-organised coup. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they thought they would have a coup overthrow the socialists and just be in power immediately. They were not, of course, anticipating a prolonged civil war. No. The other thing I'd say is at this point, we've heard of General Franco. Yeah. Uh, so he's in Morocco this at this point, isn't he? No, no, he's not actually. Is he not? They, oh, parked, him, they, they parked him in uh, the Canary Islands to start oh, with. Oh, that's they, right. They, they parked him over there just sort of, you know, so he could <laughs> dodge, dodge students trying to sell him timeshares. <laughs> I don't, know if you've, I don't know if you've ever been to Gran Canaria, but that's basically what, that's what you spend most of your time doing. Because um, that was, of course, a, a Spanish territory. Uh, one of the others was, uh, then they, he managed to get to uh, Morocco, as you say, to join mm-hmm. up with the Moroccan army with the help of a couple of uh, British uh, enterprising secret agents who lent them, his, uh, lent them a plane. And uh, ah. he flew them over. And then, um, and this coup... You know, rose up in every major city in um, Spain, and um, was put down and was defeated in pretty well every major city in Spain except Seville, where they succeeded. But in Barcelona, in Madrid, in Malaga, and all these places, the, the coup was defeated. Now that would have been it, but However, for the fascist forces in the rest of Europe. This is obviously in the background of the 1930s. So you've had from the 20s, you've yeah. had Mussolini in Italy. And from 1933, you've had Hitler in Germany. So there's the rise of the fascists across Europe. So therefore, this sort of the phalangists, the relatively small fascist group yeah. in Spain, suddenly gets this support from these quite big powers, financial support and armoured support and personnel support and so rather than it just being this small group of fascists against the republic it's they're suddenly they're being financed by by fascism as a whole really exactly it sort of becomes Mm. part of the uh, wider european struggle between the nervous democracies and belligerent uh fascist states so the coup would have failed without i think that most historians agree about this would have failed without mussolini jumping in uh, airlifting the army from Morocco to southern Spain. Yeah. Uh, Hitler also lent planes, and they did this within the first week. And they said, we have to hurry up, because uh, Goering said to Mussolini, we have to hurry up, because the British will not let us get away with this. Oh, how uh, wrong they were. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because in fact, the British would let Mussolini and Hitler get away with helping the fascists take over in Spain, and they would later let the fascists get away with you know, occupying Austria, Czech Sudetenland. And this is all part of appeasement policy of the fascists mm-hmm. in Europe. It should be seen in that context. So the appeasement policy has already started in Europe, hasn't it? So yeah. therefore yeah. Um, Britain doesn't want to um, or doesn't want to provoke war at this point. 
No, and also uh, there are plenty of people in the British government, either the Conservative government of the 1930s, who mm-hmm. have uh, who side are on the side of the business interests of the sherry growers and the various mm-hmm. British financial interests in Spain, and on the idea of uh, social order in Spain rather than a socialist uh, republic, which uh, might attract the support of the Soviet Union. Well, that's it, because everyone's paranoid about after the Bolshevik Revolution, that communism will spread across Europe, aren't they? So that's at this stage, that's, right. that's a bigger threat to Britain than fascism, as the government sees it. Well, I think as, a, as the government sees it, I think you're yeah. right. So, I mean, it should be said that when this coup happened, almost half the army remained loyal to the elected government. In the first week, the, one of the leaders of the coup, uh, San Giorgio, how do you say that? San Giorgio. I've got real problem. I, I'm really sort of trying not to have to pronounce anything. Sp- I, at my school, we had to choose German or Spanish, and I chose German. And my Spanish ah. pronunciation is really bad. Just, just go, ha, 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 ha. Be like... <laughs> Oh, <laughs> uh, uh, there's John's the, token uh, bit of racism. We get a little bit in every episode. There it's it not is. Racism. I'm doing my best. <laughs> doing my best here to make an effort with these saying the J's like an H. That's what you're doing. It. <laughs> okay, Juan. Um, Juan. Juan. Juan Hofheil. Um, but one of the coup leaders was uh, killed in a plane crash, which meant the leadership was split between General Mola and General Franco. Now Franco was just an army man, but he was quite uh, ambitious. And within the first week, you know, he'd set up his own press office. Mm. And so the British newspapers were referring to this as the Franco Rising. Mm. Uh, he had very good PR, going, didn't he, Franco? How come your name got attached to this, uh, <laughs> Franco? It's like, oh, well, they must have just picked up on some detail. You know, press releases were coming into every European newspaper from his <laughs> uh, from his, from his own Alistair Campbell, you know. <laughs> Both sides, uh, you know, uh, started conscripting. Just in terms of the geography of who held where, at the beginning, the nationalists, the fascist uh, uprisers, held the north and the west. That's the border with Portugal. And Portugal itself had its own dodgy quasi-fascist mm. government, the Estado Novo, under Salazar. So they were all the stuff coming through their ports could come straight to the border and support the um, uprising. Uh, whereas the, the, the Republicans, um, the legal government, we should emphasise, they held the centre, Catalonia, the Basque countries and the industrial centres. It was a lot of, very much countryside versus cities. Mm-hmm. It's like Brexit, but with machine guns. <laughs> <laughs> Which would have made the whole affair a lot swifter. <laughs> oh God, what a terrible thought. But yeah, but as the country sort of descended into civil war, a sort of revolution was happening as well in the more radical parts of Spain. So cities like Catalonia, there was a very feverish atmosphere and a whole new type of society trying to be established. There were some anarchist areas, and uh, this caught my attention, uh, where it was decided they should abolish money. <laughs> and <laughs> uh, so they actually had meetings said right we're going to burn all the cash and it's it have been you know i could I, I i could take this cash home if you like yeah, i'll burn, I'll it, burn it when i get you. home yeah <laughs> uh, uh, shall i do this you guys go yeah. leave this with yeah. me <laughs> i got it I've you got have this. an early night <laughs> um exactly um everything was collectivized so the land was collectivized um uh, but even the barbers <laughs> so <laughs> i yeah, just know. state haircut <laughs> Yeah, I just uh, my haircut's just a state. <laughs> Very good. Thank Do you. you know, I remember seeing uh, Julian Clary, great comic. He used to have this put down line for people in the front row, which was, "Who does your hair? The council." <laughs> 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 and I always hated that joke. I mean, I've always got a massive laugh, but I always thought. <laughs> No, there's no reason why a council haircut couldn't be a great haircut. The socialist in me was going, I'm in favour of council haircuts, but everyone was laughing, so there was no there was no fighting it, I'm afraid. Uh, um, but yes, in this case, the council did cut your hair. Uh, shoe, you know, boot, boot polishers, everyone was working for the... It, it feels a bit, have you ever been to Cuba? Is it, no, I haven't. Is it like that? It is very much like that. And you sort of go to the state-run ice cream parlour and things like that. It's... Um... Right. Yeah, I'll have a uh, I'll have a ninety nine, please. Well, if you fill out these forms, exactly. we'll, get, we'll get the ice cream back to you in three months. <laughs> um, what else happened? The fighting bulls that belonged to the rich families uh, were slaughtered, mm-hmm. and the poor ate steak for the very first time, which must have been uh, a treat for them all. Very indignant rich families saying, you can't kill our bulls. Kill our bull. We wanted to kill our bulls. <laughs> That's in... what, you, what, sorry, what were you going to do with them? Yeah, well, exactly. we were gonna... <laughs> 
We were going to kill them in pretty outfits. <laughs> With lots of people in a long, lingering and cruel death for our own entertainment. One other thing about the uh, revolutionary socialists uh, on the uh, Republican side is that they're very hostile to religion. Uh, religion had been part of the uh, sort of oppressive nature of the state in Catholic Spain. There were issues of class around priests uh, and the uh, established church. All the schools, uh, nearly all the schools in Spain were um, religious ones, and these were closed down. Churches were burned, religious statues pulled down. There's a picture in one of the books I was reading of a firing squad taking aim at the statue of Jesus outside Madrid. Right. Um, of, of the Christ. So you can imagine if you're a sort of devout Catholic, it makes you hard to be on the same side as as, as the revolutionaries. Yeah. And um, in fact, there were, I think because of, of that, the other in Catholic, like in Ireland, for example, um, yeah. where they'd had their own uprising, um, there were, well, I mean, we'll come on to the international brigades and stuff later, but there were volunteer yeah. fighters on both sides from Ireland because of the persecution of the Catholic priests in Spain. Yes, absolutely. It's interesting because mm. my dad uh, was a young man during the Spanish Civil War uh, in Ireland, mm. and his father they used to get the Catholic Herald in the in the house, and his father was pro the Franco side because he read the Catholic Herald, and my dad was a fierce young socialist and was had big arguments with his dad about Spain. Mm. And in Ireland, they had the ex IRA men going out and fighting for the Republicans, yeah, you know, the re- veterans of the Civil War in Ireland in twenty one, yeah, and. Uh, Ewan O'Duffy's blue shirts, who were the sort of uh, pathetic Irish fascist party, fascist, had yeah. hundreds of vol- hundreds of their volunteers went out and fought for Franco's side. They do weird. love a dark shirt, don't they, fascists? <laughs> the fascists, yeah. Black yeah. shirts, brown shirts, navy blue shirts. It makes me shirts. feel like their biggest that- concern was stains. <laughs> <laughs> Never pink shirts, is it? Never we are. Shirts. We shall be known as the pink shirts. The lilac yeah, shirts. A, the, the, the beige shirts. <laughs> and all of Europe is falling under the jackboot and the beige shirt. <laughs> no. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I think Franco sort of adopted the uh, fascist sort of uniform, the salute, mm. of course. I don't think he was an ideological fascist in the same way as Mussolini or Hitler. He wasn't start. He was really a very conservative politician who wanted the military in charge. It just suited uh, he, him to have their money, didn't it? Rather than it suited them to have their support and their yeah. and it was sort of it was sort of fashionable in the nineteen thirties, right, to have, mm. you know, to be a fascist. Um so I don't think he was motivated in quite the same um uh anti Semitism. I'm sure he wasn't anti Semite, but not quite in the same mm. mad and uh obsessive way that Hitler was. But uh, mm. the thing about the breakdown of social order that followed this revolution is that everyone was being given guns. Yep. To fight the fascists. And if you just got a load of mad people in a revolution all being given rifles, there's going to be a lot of, in a, in a, in a violent society already, there's going to yeah. be a lot of scores and a lot of uh, grudges and a lot of old vendettas and the old grievances being sorted out. Absolutely. And a lot of this was exactly, that was it, street fights. It was local yeah. neighbourhood vendettas and, uh, you know, under the guise of it being part of this greater... That- that bloke who gave me a bad review on Amazon, he, he would be, <laughs> I'd be after him. <laughs> that Daily Telegraph radio reviewer. <laughs> That's what it was like, though. It was people yeah. People were uh, murdering neighbours on the flimsiest of pretexts. You know, they're saying he was a fascist collaborator, but it was basically he, he uh, you know, he nicked my girlfriend when I was 16. You know, it yeah. was uh, all sorts of people who hated other people were killing them and getting away with it. It yeah. was Twitter trolls with revolvers is what it was. Um, so terrifying. Um Meanwhile, so while the the, the Republican side uh, were trying to have a revolution and fighting a war in, in their different regions, you know, the Nationalists, which gradually became led by Franco, they were just totally focused on the war and whatever was most effective to that end. Um, Franco was a very, you know, very effective Are you saying, man. John, that the left were busy fighting amongst themselves <laughs> while the right just... Got together and got on with it. Is that is this that what you're is saying? Unprecedented John? in history. I know it'll never happen again, will it? <laughs> the, the right were focused on the winning. The left were arguing about the means, and uh, uh, we're anarchists. We don't hold positions of authority. Oh, for God's sake! <laughs> yeah. So, um, 
you know, um, Franco was not a particularly religious man, uh, although his wife was, but he was a conservative. And um, I don't think his wife was a religious man. We should probably... No, sorry, sorry. Religious, <laughs> no, his wife was a religious person. Uh, and, and he was just a, you know, a conservative who became a, um, a fascist, you know, to suit his purposes. Mm-hmm. But they, as I say, they adopted the salute. And as for the brutality of fascism, well, they certainly adopted that. It was the, uh, yeah. it was the most brutal and murderous uh, of wars. Um and uh, the thing I'll say about the difference between the murder on both sides is that on the Republican side, m- murders and vendettas and executions happened because social order broke down and people took the law into their own hands and mm-hmm. killed each other for no good reason quite often. But from Franco's side and from the nationalist side, it was the policy of the um, authorities to murder opponents, to kill anyone who stood in their way and to execute intellectuals, suspected left-wingers. Which was a, a fascist policy across Europe, right? Well, of course, to kill of course, communists, just, Jews, yeah. intellectuals. Yeah. So um, uh, the beginning socialists. of the war, someone like the, uh, the Spanish playwright Federico García Lorca was mm-hmm. just murdered by the nationalists for being an intellectual and for being gay. And uh, mm. he had moved to a different part, a dangerous part of the countryside, thinking if he went home, he'd be safe. They dragged him out of his house, shot him. They said, I shot him twice more in the arse for being queer. That was the oh, nature of the... That, I mean, that's the, medieval. That is literally uh, like yeah, how yeah. Edward II was killed, wasn't it? With a, Not it with is, a gun, yeah. but, you know, with the red hot poker up his jacksie for yeah, yeah, the same yeah. reason. So it was a free-for-all in terms of uh, murder, but very much encouraged by Franco and his side. On that grim murder of yes. a great playwright, I have a huge poster of Lorca that I've had ever since my university days. Uh, it's oh. too big to put on any wall. I don't quite know what to do with it, but I always had this oh. massive sort of uh, face of Lorca staring down at me in my university days, and uh, I've got it rolled up in the loft now. I'll have to tweet a picture of it for people to see. But uh, So I've yeah. always felt a connection with Lorca because he's, he's staring down at me every morning when I when I have my breakfast. Um, <laughs> there, we're thinking of uh, the, the, the murder of a playwright. We'll take a break. Um, have a cup of tea and we'll get on to the European powers and what they did and didn't do. Listen to an advert or two from ACAST and we'll, uh, we'll pretend we had a cup of tea in the gap. And we are back. Hope you enjoyed those adverts. Uh, whatever they were for... We didn't choose them. That's all you need to know. We got our hands burnt when we kept having Telegraph uh, adverts put in. Although we did tell them to stop those. We did tell them to stop the Telegraph adverts and they did. But anyway, uh, we are back to talking about the Spanish Civil War. Where had we got to, John? We'd got to the brutality of both sides, but the planned and intentional brutality of Franco's side. And just to paint a picture for you, the Republicans, the legal government, hold most of the cities and Mm -hmm. the central bit of Spain, the southeastern corner and the Basque country. Franco's forces hold the very fiercely Catholic and poorest agricultural regions of the north, mm-hmm. the border with Portugal and Seville and Cadiz. But you know, as I said, the initial coup had in effect failed, which is why they were having a civil war. And then Mussolini became very involved for ideological reasons, really. There's a difference between the involvement of the two fascist powers of Europe uh, Mussolini believed in the fascist cause and mm. was pouring uh, weapons and troops into Spain for that. Germany was testing out equipment. Right. Seriously, they were just like, they lost interest. Once they'd realised what was, they could do with their bombers, they I took them off back Spain to wasn't a particularly strategic location for Germany, was it, in well, terms of... Well, I suppose for shipping in the you know the Mediterranean, mm. it was quite important. You know, Mussolini wanted a, a fascist Mediterranean. Uh, he actually mm. turned Mallorca into an effective Italian colony, yeah. and they did their bombing without even consulting Franco, and he would find out about it afterwards. So it was quite humiliating yeah. for the Spanish coup leaders that they were not really part of this. But you know, eventually, so the air 50, bombing 000... raids, the air bombing raids during the Spanish Civil War, were sort yeah. of. Came from Germany, really, not and Italy, from... and Italy, yeah. And Italy, I mean, no, yeah. they had their own air force, but nothing like the German or Italian air forces. Yeah, and they didn't have all the planes, of course. Some of the Republicans uh, had the airports, so mm. it's a question. That it was very, all very 
complex and there's no hard and fast rules about any of this. But the great military difference was the assistance that the Germans and Italians gave and the lack of assistance that the Republicans had from anyone until the Russians a bit later on. The Moroccan mercenaries were fighting for the nationalists. We had 50,000 Italian troops coming in. You had 600 planes from Germany coming in, 200 tanks. Italy gave 660 planes, 150 tanks, quarter of a million rifles. And then you had the Portugal under the Estado Novo uh, giving logistical help and letting the nationalists use their port. So the only countries in the world which supported legal government were Russia mm. and Mexico, who uh, openly supported the Republicans. But that's, of course, no strategic use at all. Because the rest of Europe obviously have adopted this non-intervention Yeah, well, basically France and uh, Britain were the major powers yeah. of Europe. And America followed suit as well, actually, of non-intervention. So we'll talk about the bombing of Guernica. That was yeah. a market day in the Basque town of Guernica, not a military, you know, not a place where they made armaments or anything. The planes came in waves, bombing people in the market. No one knows how many civilians were killed. Some say 200, some say 1,000, but mm. they were bombed and then they were followed up with machine gunning. And that became one of the most famous atrocities and war crimes of the Spanish Civil War done by Italian and German planes. I think it was Italian and German. I think mostly Italian, I think. This mm. was, the Pomi Guernica was denied by Franco's government who, because it was an international outrage. Well, they, they did they not the, suggest that it was the Republicans themselves had staged it? Yes, they said benefit. they'd done it for propaganda purposes. Yeah. That they had blown up their own town to show the world these terrible images. And it remained an, a, a crime in Spain uh, for decades and decades afterwards to say that Guernica had been bombed by the nationalists. Uh, so well into the 50s and 60s, I think, you couldn't mention Guernica. Wow. Mussolini continued to uh, pour money and troops into the civil war. And all this was building a massive debt up for Franco, then the nationalist yeah. uh, who would eventually win, uh, which, of course, evaporated when Hitler and Italy lost the Second World War. So all those bills, <laughs> that, uh, they'd, they were like, Just oh, well, no. They completely disappeared. So it was, from that disappeared point of view, with it was the fascists. Yeah. But at this yeah. point, of course, I suppose what Gonica did was show the rest of Europe the power of the Luftwaffe, right? And the, exactly. That's gave what them Germany something was to fear. Germany was testing out these uh, these machines because it was a new thing. Aerial war was not something really mm. bombing was not a significant thing in the First World War. This is the you know they're learning to do yeah. this really. This is why it's it amazes me that, that when we learn about World War Two, certainly when I did at school, that we this wasn't really covered as such a precursor right. to it, which is what it so clearly is, right? It's a, it clearly is a rehearsal for the Second World yeah. War in terms of uh, the sides and the um, techniques. Uh, remember, the First World yeah. War was all trenches uh, yeah. and then they invented tanks, you know, and so trenches yeah. no longer became a thing. And then they invented air war. And uh, these were tried out to with great and terrifying effect in the Spanish mm. Civil War. So the, the only people really giving military help to the nationalist side were the Russians. And the Soviet Union yeah. were giving tanks and uh, money. This is Stalin uh, at this time, obviously. Stalin, yeah. Uh, yeah. And now he was, you know, pretending to support a uh, democratically elected <laughs> socialist government. But uh, he sent more and more advisors and gave more and more instruction and increased the division between the Stalin loyalists on the nationalist side mm. and the Trotskyists. Of, well, actually, it's unfair to say that PUM, which is P-O-U-M. Yeah, they were, they were condemned as Trotskyists, but they, were, they weren't yeah. really, were they? They were yeah. just and, and, not Stalinists. <laughs> exactly. And George Orwell writes about this a lot, doesn't he, in Homage to Catalonia? Yeah, yeah. Um, you've been reading that, Angela? I think I have been reading it. I am at least a third of the way through. Um, <laughs> yes. And I, am, I only started reading it yesterday or the day before. So that's, you know, I'm very yeah, busy but, with my crochet during lockdown, John. Okay. So, you know, I fair can enough, only do one enough. thing at a time. Um, but it is a it is a crochet about the Spanish Civil War, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. It's it's immense. Bayer Tapestry's got nothing on what I'm producing right now. <laughs> so, yeah, so on one side you've got the Soviet Union supplying tanks and uh, guns, and mm -hmm. on the other side you've got the uh, Germans and Italians. Meanwhile, Britain is yep. saying, well, let's have a non-intervention committee. Yes. And so they have this actual committee which sits, sits and meets, you know, like the League of Nations thing. And Germany yeah. and Italy on it. And they sit around discussing how non-intervention is going. What's that loud exploding outside? <laughs> sort of dive bombers. No, that, that's nothing. Literally, yeah. the Italians and Germans uh, were stalling and denying the whole time as uh, they were very much were intervening, even though they sat yeah. at these non-intervention committee meetings. 
So then you have volunteers. Ah, this is the thing I find fascinating. And I think this is the thing that people know most about the Spanish Civil War, because they know that Hemingway and George Orwell and these sort of creative yeah. uh, people went. But I just find the whole thing fascinating. So volunteers came from all across Europe and America and South yeah. America to fight for the Republic, various factions, either as part of the International Brigade or there was... Poom, which George Orwell, Orwell fought with, yeah. um, who were the so-called Trotskyist, but essentially just, just non-Stalinist. Um, yeah. So the international brigades were funded by Communist International, by the Comintern, pretty much. So Stalin's right. in, in Russia. They attracted volunteers who were, I suppose, in Britain particularly, the volunteers that went. And I can't remember the number. I know there were like 500 from Scotland. There were lots from Wales, at mining it's communities. About, I think at least 1,000 from the UK. At least a thousand, uh, I think possibly yeah. more. Um, yeah, I when. think you're probably right. And generally speaking, they were trade unionists. They were members of their local communist party, which were often one and the same. They were people yep. from mining villages in Wales. Um, so there's this sort of perception, I think, that a lot of the volunteers were kind of middle class artistic types because we know about Hemingway, we know about yeah. George Orwell. But actually, the majority yeah. of them were working class, you know, manual. Yeah, yeah. They just. Uh, working class socialists, yeah. I mean, I think the yeah. thing about Orwell and Hemingway. Hemingway, I'm not sure actually uh, was at the front. I think he was writing. No, from he was Barcelona there as a journalist. In Madrid, yeah, yeah, yeah. As a Madrid. Was, and Orwell yeah. went as a journalist and ended up signing up and got shot yeah. in the throat and and his health never really recovered. He did. Uh, he had to go from when he when the war came because he'd been seen action in Spain. He was put in charge of his home guard. He'd be volunteered for the home guard. So it's like Dad's army with George Orwell, and it's hard to imagine. <laughs> well, <laughs> but, well, that's um, the thing, but the, the British particularly were seen as being more experienced in warfare. So when the volunteers came yep. to fight for the International Brigades, they were seen as being, or they certainly felt superior to the Spaniards because the Spaniards hadn't fought in World War One, And so they had more recent experience of war. However, the truth is that by that time, by the 30s, most of the people who had fought yeah. in World War One were too old to get, yeah, so there were actually yeah. very few actual veterans from World War One that went to Spain, but being British, they thought meant that they had this superiority in in warfare, which caused yeah. a lot of clashes with the locals. And um, the locals generally, local Republicans were, you know, pleased to have the support, but there yeah. were, you know, the international volunteers had a tendency to go and get pissed up in local bars and cause right. havoc, and you know, there were clashes and there were. Um, you know, problems yeah. like that. I mean, some famous people there. You had uh, Jack Jones, who became General Secretary of the Transport and General Workers yep. Union in my childhood. Every time he was on the telly, my dad always went, fought in Spain, he did, fought in Spain. <laughs> Earned him an enormous amount of respect in, in on, the, yeah. on the Labour left. It was like to have fought in Spain was to have, to have made that sacrifice, you know, to have Absolutely. gone out. Absolutely. You had Laurie, Laurie Lee. Laurie Lee. Yeah. yeah. Some of the interesting people that came from Europe, um, I found, was Willy Brandt, who went on to be West German Chancellor. I th was he out there as a negotiator, though, more as a soldier? I, I, I read about him. Uh, okay. Because also, I tell you who was also out there. Milke. Ulbricht. Ulbricht was there. was there, but so but was I, Eric Milke, who was the leader of the Stasi. Yeah. Um, so uh, some of those were there as Stalin's agents, I think, rather than as uh, heroic yeah. sort of fighters. Paul um, Robeson as a sort of entertainer. Yeah. Good old Paul Robeson. Good old Paul he, Robeson. He, he, was a, he was a great character. He was. He was. Um, he suffered for that later at the hands of yeah, the he did. And it, it, McCarthyism here, and all of that. Listen to our McCarthy podcast and you'll hear about poor Paul Robeson. You will. Um, Esmond Romilly was Churchill's nephew, but a firebrand socialist, and mm -hmm. he volunteered in Spain and flew out there. Stephen Spender, the poet, I think was more an observer than a, than a, a soldier. Virginia Woolf's nephew died out there. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, people we've not heard of because they died and they never came back, so yeah. they didn't become famous. I think so. the motivation for the volunteers is quite interesting. I read somewhere, some, and I can't remember which book I read, so I'm sorry I can't attribute this to whoever I read it in, but um, somebody said that to recruit volunteers, you have to be defending something. So, for example, right. in the Boer War, yeah. volunteers were recruited to go and fight because they were sold the idea that they were defending the empire. Wow. Whereas in order to commit aggressive action, you need yeah. conscription because you right. can't okay. encourage can't people. Yeah, you can't sell it. Whereas yeah. a defence, you can. And I think yeah. the, the thing that was being defended 
particularly, I guess, if you were a socialist, a communist, or yeah. even just, um, you know, Democrat, an artist really. or a Democrat, or yeah. if you were homosexual, if you were Jewish. Remember, yes. we'd had Cable Street had happened. Yeah. Uh, in the East End, you had Mosley and the black shirts going on. You, you were threatened yeah. if you were in any of those groups. You could see the rise of fascism and you could see uh, that fascists killed those people. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. so it was... It wasn't seen. It was seen as a defence of their way of life and their way of being and their political beliefs and stuff. So, it it was um, understandable, I think, that the the volunteers made that journey. The journeys were funded by the Communist Party. So to get to Spain, for example, and this was something quite interesting. So in Sweden, the majority of the volunteers yeah. that went to fight from Sweden were sailors. And the same okay. from Australia. The majority of volunteers that came from Australia were sailors. And that was because to get from Australia particularly to Spain would be really expensive. Right. Um, whereas if you were a sailor, you could make your way by working on ships. Oh, God, how amazing. Okay. Across. Yeah, and so to. that's why the majority were. Whereas in um, Britain, what they did, if you wanted to volunteer, what you would do, you'd have to be interviewed first by your local Communist Party usually. Um, wow. You'd be interviewed to check that your communist credentials and your reasons for wanting to go were, you know, right. w fit with the ideals that they were fighting for. And then you'd be sent to London. And you, when you got to London, you would be issued with a return ticket to Paris. And this was because at that time in the 30s, you could go to Paris without a passport for a weekend. Right. As wow. long as you had a return ticket. Wow. So, and that was to facilitate lots of young men going for dirty weekends in Paris at this particular time, which is quite fashionable okay. to do. Um, and so, so they were bought, the Communist Party would buy you a return ticket to Paris. And then from Paris, the Communist Party in France would take over. They would get you to the Pyrenees and get you across the Pyrenees. Wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. And, um, and, um, you know, it, this was illegal. It should be said that you weren't allowed to do this because we were not. Yeah. We had a policy of non-intervention, so British people were not allowed to volunteer. Yeah, uh, and also you uh, had even, the. I mean, you had the Foreign Enlistment Act, which was from eighteen seventy, which says you can't join an army of another country if Britain's neutral. Right. Um, that was a response to the civil war in America. Right, but I mean, I mean, it should be said that the. I mean, however heroic and uh, well-intentioned the the motives of these volunteers was. They didn't make that much difference uh, militarily. I think yeah. there were enormous value in terms of uh, propaganda and morale for the Spanish to see thousands and thousands mm. of people flocking over the Pyrenees to join the Republican cause. 10,000 French people volunteered yeah. in defence of the democratically elected government of Spain. The recruitment of them was quite interesting as well because government you couldn't directly recruit for volunteers because that was illegal. Yeah. Um, so things like the communist socialist newspapers yeah. Uh, would report on the volunteers, but wouldn't actively say this is how you recruit. Um, yes. But there were propaganda posters and things. And that's where, you know, the uh, Manic Street Preachers song, If You Tolerate This, Then Your Children Will Be Next. Oh, right. And that, that was propaganda um, to British potential Communist Party volunteers. And it was pictures of bombed, uh, bombers um, in the sky picture, and dead yeah. children, you know, and it's yeah. If You Tolerate yeah. This, Then Your Children Will Be Next. And that's what that oh, was okay. for. It was propaganda to recruit yeah. volunteers. And there's yeah. actually a great memorial to the uh, International Brigade here in Lambeth. It's a statue in Jubilee Gardens in memory of the International Brigade people who went out in the 30s. So illegal in the 30s, but now today in the 21st century, we, we salute them and we'll be able to statues to them quite rightly too. I think it's worth um, saying as well that at that time in the 30s, although the International Brigades were funded by the Comintern, were funded by Stalin, obviously Stalin's greatest crimes hadn't really come to light at that oh, point. Oh, no. Oh, no, um, you yeah, know, so yeah. I think to say they were Stalinist in our heads in the 21st century, yeah, you know, it didn't mean yeah. what that means now. No, um, quite. And people like Dennis Healy was a communist. You know, there were plenty of respectable people who who, who considered themselves communists. Yeah, the or, you know, or even as, Stalinists. Yeah, or just because that was actually the strongest organisation fighting uh, mm. fascism. Uh, yeah. back, rather than the, the lily-livered response of the British government was to say, uh, well... Um, Let's just try and not intervene on either side, and you're both as bad as each other, and which is, of course, why uh, Franco would eventually succeed. The Spanish government actually gave citizenship, didn't they, to the in the nineties, I think, to the members of the International Brigade that were still alive, which were about six hundred of them. Wow! And uh, well, in nineteen ninety six, Jacques Chirac granted the former French members of the International Brigade a legal status of for, former service 
personnel. Oh, that's cool. So they were recognised as, as veterans. Yeah. Uh, wow. Wow. There you go. So they were fighting in Catalonia and, uh, and in the defence of Madrid. Franco had moved fast towards Madrid when the war broke out in 36, and everyone thought, oh, Madrid is going to fall really quickly. Um, remember that these Republican armies were quite improvised and uh, uh, disparate and didn't have the, uh, t- the the tanks and the equipment and oh, the discipline. I mean, reading Franco. homage to Catalonia, the you know the stories of the ancient pre-World War One rifles they were using, you know. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and, yet they, um, and yet they held out Madrid for, mm. for over two years and Franco was pushed back. He had four columns marching on Madrid. Mm-hmm. And he said, I will take Madrid because I have a fifth column on the inside. And that's where we get the phrase fifth columnist yeah. from, from Franco's uh, attempt to take Madrid with uh, people who would betray. And for um, anyone listening who doesn't know what fifth columnists are, they are a sort of the the invading faction that already exists within the... Yeah, the, the traitors on the inside. On the inside, really. yeah. yeah. The nationalists made gain in the north. They took the Basque country, where they probably banned the Basque language, and they eventually managed to divide the Republican areas in two. Uh, so you had Catalonia, you know, where Barcelona is, separated mm-hmm. from Madrid and the, the south coast. Really, the, uh, the fascists only had one defeat in the whole war, in the Battle of Guadalajara. And the poor Republicans were sort of stymied by, as I say, amateur troops, divided leadership. Mm-hmm. Stalinist purges, but most of all, not having massive foreign aid as the fascists. <laughs> not having did. Hitler's money. Um, I did say, you know, that Franco wasn't particularly ideological, but it was deeply, deeply conservative. Mm. And as areas fell under nationalist control, the new regime imposed its sort of deeply social conservatism on them. So divorce became illegal once again. The Republic had made it divorce legal. They'd made abortion legal. Abortion was legal for the first time anywhere in Western Europe in Republican Spain. In terms of what they had to do for women, let me read a bit out of this book, The Spanish Civil War by David Mitchell, not the not David Mitchell one. from Peep Show. <laughs> oh, not even David Mitchell, the novelist, I don't think. In keeping with the Cordillo, that's Franco, Cordillo's newfound piety, uh, the, tolum- the tone was solemn and prudish. All women between the ages of 17 and 35 had to promise on the sacred heart of Jesus to observe modesty in dress, long sleeves, high necks, skirts to the ankles, blouses full at the chest, to read no novels, newspapers or magazines, to go to no cinema or theatre without ecclesiastical licence, neither publicly nor privately to dance the dances of this century but to learn the old dances. Wow. What age group was that? Women? Women between uh, 17 and 35. Wow. So I'm 43, so now I can read novels with my tits out. Is that right? (laughs) I think that's what they were saying. Good to know. I didn't read the rest of it. That's what it says in the second paragraph. Once once you've got past this, you can read. Do what you like. No one's interested in you once you're over 35 anyway. You stop being attractive to men, so it doesn't matter what you do. Fifty Shades of Grey in the nuddy after that. But can you... I've never really heard of such thing as women reading no novels. I mean, I know I shouldn't be shocked at the fascists and their emergency murdering people left, right and centre. Mm. But to say that a woman couldn't read a no- novel or a magazine, it's just astonishing. Well, they might really. learn things, might they? I mean, Jane Austen exactly even was, was, you know, had some little radical thoughts yeah. in there. Yeah. That, you know, you didn't they're want to put even, those in the little heads of ladies. They're not even prescribing books. They're saying you're not allowed to read fiction. Yeah. I, sorry, I shouldn't be so shocked, but I just thought that <laughs> I'm was not astonishing because I'd never really come across anything like that before. Mm. As the war got worse, and you know, uh, the Republicans were more and more on the defensive. The best they were thinking they might hope for is a two-state solution where there's a nationalist Spain and a Republican Spain. Mm. But Franco was uh, determined to pursue unconditional surrender all the way and to make sure that future division would be impossible by killing everyone who disagreed with him. Uh, so he, he unified the nationalist parties into one. And when one of the phalangist leaders resisted this idea, he had him in prison and put on trial for treason. So that's the sort of, you know... Nice guy. Uh, no nonsense that they had. <laughs> so the, all, all this time, the Republicans' greatest hope is Britain and France and thinking that Hitler is pushing it in Europe, Mussolini is bombing Abyssinia, that Britain will say enough is enough fascists and stop Hitler at uh, uh, in the Rhineland or in Austria or in the Sudetenland. But when the Munich Agreement came up, when the Munich Agreement happened and uh, Hitler was basically allowed to do whatever he wanted in Czechoslovakia. This is Chamberlain's really peace fi- now time and all of that. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. that was basically the, the fast nail in the coffin for the Spanish Republicans because they gave up hope that there would be a Europe-wide halt to the rise of fascism. Mm. They were thinking that they'd hoped that, you know, war against... Germany, Italy and the fascists in Spain might be one their best chance. 
In fact, they're probably as good as defeated already militarily. And Catalonia was conquered in February 1939. Catalonian language banned, of course. Mm-hmm. Old-fashioned Spanish sort of culture imposed everywhere. There was to be no menus in French, no foreign songs. The Catholic Church re-established. You had to go to church by law. In Madrid, there was a sort of an attempted coup against Republicans holding out. So there's a civil war within the civil war. But in March 39. The Nationalists finally occupied Madrid and Franco claimed victory on the 1st of April 39. So April Fool's Day, he was only kidding. Yeah, I know, God. <laughs> yeah, 1939, gotcha. so, you know, j- just as the war was ending, the rest of the continent was sliding into a, a bigger and equally, but equally brutal war. Yeah, we're um, talking just well, I think a few months. Yeah, away, and, and uh, I think I think it's fair enough to, to say that, like Czechoslovakia, Spain was a victim of appeasement. Yeah, um, and as we said with Goering, you know, saying to Mussolini, the Brits won't let us do this. Uh, one of the historians I read said that without, if if Britain had stopped the fascists in Spain, there might not have been a Second World War. There's like, pretty much everything I've read has said that. I mean, hindsight's a wonderful thing, isn't it? But yeah, um, yeah. there probably wouldn't have been a Second World War had those fascists been stopped yeah. at that point. Because every signal Britain and France had given Hitler was, you can do what you want. Yeah. So Hitler didn't expect war in, when he invaded Poland. He thought that they're going to let me do this as well, because yeah. you know, I, I, can, I can just do whatever I want. So if he'd stopped, if we'd stopped them in Spain or in Czechoslovakia, I think that a lot of mm. death and misery might have been prevented. Once war had been won, there was no sense of let's try and heal this country and bring us together. It was incredibly brutal reprisals and thousands of Republicans were executed who knows how many? The, the estimates range from 30,000 to 200,000, mm. including deaths of forced labour because they made the Republicans build canals and roads and, and monuments to the fallen, which was, uh, and, and people died building monuments to the fallen through slave labour. Has to be said that if the, a Republican victory, you know, would not have meant Spain turning into 1970s Sweden, those divisions <laughs> and uh, uh, Stalinist purges would have continued yeah. and maybe another civil war would have come after that. Almost certainly would, wouldn't it? Because those there were so many factions. Yeah, uh, that yeah. you know were part of the Republican side. There's no way they would have just lived in harmony forevermore. Amen. No, no. <laughs> I mean, and then the um, you know we're talking about the International Brigade. They mm. they weren't welcomed as you know heroes when they came back home by their governments. No, uh, they were discredited. And in America, anyone who'd fought in the Spanish Civil War come the late 1940s. Uh, the McCarthyists would label them as communists and yep. they'd be hounded out of work, you know, uh, blacklisted yeah, uh, and la- labelled as communist traitors. Spain was isolated after the defeat of the Axis powers in 1945 and was suddenly this lone fascist power. Spain and Portugal were these lone fascist powers on the edge of the continent. Mm. Boycotted by the left. Those is a holiday destination. My dad would always go, we're not going to Spain until Franco dies. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of the uh, Republicans escaped. Some of them went to Mexico where they were okay, but some went to France. And you're, you know, you're an anti-fascist escaping France in 1939. A year later, the Nazis move in and you're suddenly being arrested by the Petain government. So mm. the leader of the, the Republicans in Spain, Largo Caballero, uh, he was sent to a German concentration camp. Yeah. Um, lots of them were imprisoned and died in concentration camps during the war. Spain gradually opened up in the 1960s, tourism replacing agriculture, mm-hmm. and Franco died in 1975. Remember that very well. Um, Before I was born, John. Was it? Only just, but I was born in 76. <laughs> I remember the pause on the news. I remember watching this guy in Spanish going, Franco is the more... <laughs> it was like, it was like the, the drama with it. this newsreader uh, gave this terrible news to Spain. You know, he'd been sort of ill for ages. Yeah. And it was um, Juan Carlos came as a... Uh, so the, monarchy the mon- restored? Con- constitutional monarchy. But the divisions ran very, very deep. And uh, it took a long time for the truth to really be discussed. And it's the young people mm. now who are really saying, we want to know what happened. And graves are being dug up now. You say it's a real uh, movement in that, isn't there? To, there is, yeah. To sort of find in out fact, exactly what happened. In fact, only last year was Franco's body finally removed from the uh, massive monument of the uh, fallen because mm. he's a you know he's a c- criminal and a murderer rather than a national hero, um, and he was uh, buried at a private chapel. Um, but that came after much campaigning and much bitter argument of reopening these old wounds or you know having truth and reconciliation. Um, yeah. The bad people always want to say, oh, let's bygones be bygones. And people go, no, we need to process this as a country. We need to face up to what we did. Yeah. Which, yeah. you know, you have to say something Germany did do. 
They did do. They sort of forced to do it because yeah. they were under occupation, I suppose. Well, yeah. Because East Germany didn't. East Germany didn't do it so well, did they? We sort of. Did well, that East that Germany sort of podcast. convinced themselves that they'd had nothing to do with the Nazis at all. <laughs> <laughs> they were the victims. It was of them fascism. over there. Yeah. What did it? Not us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, you know that was uh, the Spanish Civil War. Uh, uh, a very, mm. very bleak and dark episode in European history. And in our podcast, consequently. And in, in podcast, <laughs> not a lot of laughs this week. I mean, they always say that um, history is written by the winners, but I'd say the history of the Spanish War was written by the losers, mm. really, uh, because of the wider context of fascism being t- defeated across Europe. Yeah. You know, we have been able to talk about what Franco did and the... It was you only know, in the, Spain the, where it wasn't really, I suppose. Yes, exactly. But in, in the rest of the world, the, the history of the Spanish War was written by the, the losers. Mm-hmm. It's only now that you know, uh, more and more truth is coming out. And the, the level of the, uh, the the murders and the scale of the executions and the brutality of the repression and the randomness of the executions um, uh, makes you realise mm-hmm. what a complete psychopath Franco and the military junto were. Absolutely. Anything else? Um, I don't think so. Up on your so reading? The sort of well, I was just going to say the books that we, we Battle for Spain, Battle of Spain, yes. um, Anthony uh, Beaver. That's, that's the Beaver one. Yeah, it's quite a tome, um, but it's yeah, got it's lots of uh, information in it, and um, obviously a homage to Catalonia, which I am working. My, I'm, I will finish it. Um, and then there's, uh, <laughs> Hemingway had a huge hit with his novel For Whom the Bell Tolls, yes, of, course, of course, which he I think he started, uh, you know, sitting out there in. Uh, in Madrid with Martha Gellhorn, mm. you know, uh, who was out there as well. Um, I read A Concise History of the Spanish Civil War by Gabriel Jackson, uh, which was very good. And lots of uh, uh, illustrations in both these books. And then the other one was uh, The Spanish Civil War by David Mitchell. Um, not that one. Not that, not that David Mitchell. Or the other or the one. Novel, or the novelist David Mitchell. <laughs> or the Tory MP David Mitchell. I think there's another David Mitchell. But um, so... Um, yeah, a, a deeply political subject, which I always wanted to know more, and I'm glad I did it. Mm. Glad you suggested it, Angela. Yeah, um, it, it, same. Uh, I, I'd sort of, you know, it was always there, but I, didn't, I just didn't know any of the details, really. So, yeah, yeah. it's been interesting. Okay, well, uh, next week we'll do something lighter. Yeah, but, uh, <laughs> will we, though? <laughs> uh, <laughs> and uh, well, with less death, I think, I okay. think is what we're planning. Next a little less but, <laughs> So that's all from uh, We Are History this week. Uh, rate yeah. us, review us. Yeah, give us five um, stars on iTunes. You know you want to do us a little review. Please, yeah. I think the biggest plea we have now is can you tell your friends and family, get them to subscribe and to listen? Because um, yeah. we're doing all right in the numbers, but we can always do for more with more. Yeah. Um, and we will just spread the word. And um, also, thank you, special thank you to Spike, our producer, who is managing to make this work remotely, whereas John and I are old fuddy duddies who don't know what we're doing. So oh. um, Spike has properly come into his own now while we're doing this oh. under lockdown. Oh, Spike, I've just realised I didn't have my microphone on. Can we do the whole thing again? <laughs> Did you press play and record, John? <laughs> I didn't press play and record. Let's start again. Till next week on We Are History. Uh, don't forget See to tweet time. us as well at We Are History Pod. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.